welcome to the Gazette's Fact Checker Podcast. So we're back this week um, with some some good checks out of Iowa's 2nd Congressional District. Um, I'm Erin Jordan. I'm the Gazette's investigative reporter. I'm Michaela Ram. I'm the Gazette's healthcare reporter. I'm John Steffi. I'm the Gazette's business reporter. I'm Marissa Payne. I'm the Gazette's Cedar Rapids government reporter. And we're all here. The gang's all here. And we want to talk today about some uh, um, claims that came out of the October 8th debate between Marionette Miller-Meeks and Rita Hart. Um, So this is for the, as I said, the congressional district in the um, second district, which is Southeast Iowa. And um, these candidates have done three debates. And um, I think the last one was October 15th. But we are going back to the debate on October 8th, which was co-hosted between the Gazette and KCRG TV9. Um, so we decided to, as we did a couple weeks ago, hit on claims from both candidates from the same debate. We picked two claims uh, from each candidate. And the check I want to start with first, because I think there might be more more to debate here, and I want to make sure we have time, is the um, the check of the statements by Democrat Rita Hart. Um, now, Hart is a farmer and a retired teacher. Um, so early on in the debate, about 17 minutes into the debate, um, Hart said, um, Senator Miller Meeks, you stood on the Senate floor and told your Senate colleagues they did not need to wear a mask. Um, you know, our normal course of action is to reach out to the campaigns and ask them, you know, where they got this information. And Hart's campaign pointed to an exchange um, in the Iowa Senate on June 4th, in which Senator Bill Dotzler from Waterloo, he's a Democrat, criticized Republicans who are not wearing masks during the floor debate that day. So Miller Meeks at that point on June 4th, who was not wearing a mask, stood up and kind of defended her decision to go maskless. She said, if she's at least six feet away from other people, she doesn't, you know, that you don't need to wear a mask. And this was, this was was one of her quotes. She said, scientifically, COVID-19, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 is not aerosolized. So that's why you can have a physical separation of six feet, she said at that time. So, um, you know, at that time, there was less evidence about the virus being airborne. Um, but, you know, obviously we know now that the virus is aerosolized and that wearing masks is very important. Um, but she wasn't the only one who was kind of wrong about that. Other organizations, including the World Health Organization and others have kind of revised and tweaked their recommendations over time about the importance of mask use. But uh, Miller Meeks went on to say on June 4th that although she wasn't wearing a mask on the Senate floor, she would honor the wishes of other senators when she was nearby them. So she said at that point, I will not approach you without wearing a mask if that's how you choose for me to interact with you. And I will respect that, she said. I would ask that you respect us as well, too. I don't need to be chastised as a physician on whether I should wear a mask or not wear a mask. So... In the October 8th debate, so um, uh, several months later, uh, she said that she wears a mask and recommends that others do when they can't be socially distant. So in terms of the grade for Hart's statement about Miller Meeks standing on the Senate floor and telling her colleagues they did not need to wear a mask, we give her a D. Um, She didn't tell other people what they should or shouldn't do. She told them why she wasn't wearing a mask but said she respected their desire to wear masks. Um, 
we we didn't give her an F because um, Miller Meeks is a physician, former public health director, um, and some senators might have considered her statements medical advice. Um, so we think there's a little bit of wiggle room there, but still, I think it's it's pretty um, inaccurate to say that she told her colleagues they did not need to wear a mask. So that's the first claim. Um, the second claim is um, goes back to Hart's support of legislation in 2018 when she was in the Iowa Senate that allowed uh, uh, Wellmark, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and the Iowa Farm Bureau to create these healthcare plans that were called skinny healthcare plans that were not subject to state and federal regulation um, that were cheaper um, than some of the plans that uh, were out there. And these were for people who couldn't necessarily qualify for um, some of the special packages offered through the Affordable Care Act, but who maybe were having trouble getting one of the more expensive policies. So Hart said in the debate on October 8th, she said, not one person lost their health care because of this bill. So this was one I went back and forth on earlier in the week because um, the fact checker has a part of our criteria is that we don't check claims that are not verifiable. So in this case, could we verify that not one person lost their health care because of the bill? And it's it's very hard to show how this legislation or any piece of legislation affects individual people unless those people come forward and complain publicly or there's some sort of like government review where a government agency says, you know, we determine X number of people lost benefits or that sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, so, okay. It, so it's not Miller Meeks's job, obviously, to disprove this claim. But we did ask her campaign if they were aware of any cases in which Iowans had lost coverage because of one of the skinny plans, um, because, uh, you know, she's she and other Republicans have made a point of criticizing Hart over support of this legislation, which actually was Republican um, uh, voiced legislation. So but uh, Miller or Meeks's campaign didn't get back to us about whether they had heard any examples of this. Um, when the Gazette, when I think Michaela um, interviewed Insurance Commissioner Doug Oman in December 2018 about Affordable Care Act enrollment, Oman said the new skinny plans were having a minimal effect. He said, quote, we don't see the Farm Bureau plan as having much impact at all on those that are otherwise served by the ACA plans, Oman said at the time. If they, or they are an answer for those families who are above the 400% federal poverty level. So I, I gave this claim an A in my initial draft because, um, you know, there didn't seem to be evidence that was out there of individuals who were saying, hey, we lost our coverage. Um, and also, these plans were an alternative, not something they were forced onto or could be forced onto by their providers or the government. So I, I guess I just felt like um, it's not like they were in a plan that suddenly changed and they lost their coverage or that they were forced to join one of these skinny plans. Um, but I know that I, when I shared the draft check with the team yesterday, um, Marissa had some really good feedback. So Marissa, I wondered if you would mind sharing what you found. Yeah. Um, so something I thought about, I'm still not sure exactly where I stand on the grade for this claim. Um, but 
you know, I kind of thought about the plausibility of could people be denied coverage because of these plans or have they lost coverage because of these plans? And um, after some searching, there was a post on the Better Business Bureau, um, on the Farm Bureau Financial Services page from May 2019 from an anonymous individual claiming that they were threatened with rescission of their policy uh, from the Farm Bureau after not disclosing a pre-existing condition. And um, I mean, Farm Bureau officials at the time um, when this bill was passed and, you know, shortly before it was enacted into law, um, you know, they acknowledged that people could be denied coverage because of pre-existing conditions. And, you know, it's hard to find any publicly available data out there on, on, you know, what the ultimate impact of coverage with these plans existing has been since this has only been around for a couple of years now. Um, but yeah, so it definitely at least raised the question of, um, you know, could people have been denied coverage or lost coverage because of, because of this, but I'm sure our healthcare guru, Michaela (laughs) has some insights there too. Yeah, no, I think you raise a really good point. Um, and I do think it's worthwhile to, to look into, um, like maybe that particular individual's case or other individual's case, if they were, signed up for these plans and then forced off. Um, but I guess I would kind of make the argument um, kind of in line with the point that that Aaron made earlier, that if someone was kicked off of one of these plans or, you know, lost healthcare coverage as a result of this plan, that it would eventually tie back to issues with the marketplace, the individual marketplace. Um, you know, Doug Oman, who is the insurance commissioner, he has said since the beginning that while the ACA is a good alternative and in, in theory is good practice, um, it also has some pretty significant gaps for individuals who uh, make too much money or, um, you know, can't afford these particularly high premiums for, for certain levels of the ACA. And the, the skinny plans that were proposed by the Farm Bureau was, um, you know, was, was supposed to kind of alleviate some of that pressure. Um, you could argue that they're not really a good option just because of, of the nature of these plans. But um, I, I guess I would argue that that ultimately it, the issue kind of stems back to the marketplace um, and that, yeah, as Aaron said, the, these plans were sort of offered up as an alternative um, to issues within the marketplace. Um, yeah, the, the hard part is, I think, because the Farm Bureau is a, is a private company and these plans aren't regulated by the federal government. They they just they they decline to release data on you know how many people are benefiting from these plans, and that way we can't see really trends over time whether people have dropped on or dropped off of these plans. So so that makes it really hard to really tell you know if people are kicked off by on these plans regularly. And. I don't know. Um, I think that uh, I was really impressed that Marissa had found that statement on the Better Business Bureau site. But because it's anonymous, it's hard because, I mean, it has the ring of truth to it. I don't have any reason to suspect it's inaccurate. But like we don't have the opportunity as fact checkers to go to that person and verify who they are and like um, that this is indeed not just like maybe a plant that something put out, someone put out on the internet. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, the thing that irritates me about this, about this claim in itself is it's so bold 
to just say not one person lost their health care because of this bill. Like, she doesn't know that. Rita Hart doesn't know that. Yeah. She just is assuming that no one can prove otherwise, you know? Right. Um, which, again, gets me back to, is this claim even verifiable? Is Is it verifiable enough for us to check? John, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing because it isn't like these are numbers that you can see, okay, I mean, as Mikhail mentioned, the Farm Bureau is a private company. So that kind of limits some of that scope. Um, I think that, I mean, could there be one person? Possibly. It certainly doesn't seem to be significant. Um, I'm interested in knowing whether the Iowa Insurance Division has heard any reports of this. Um, I think that might be helpful, but it's hard to say entirely. I mean, it's maybe a little bit of an asterisk here because you don't know absolutely for sure that nobody was kicked off. So, I mean, if she said something like, I mean, there haven't been any reports of someone losing their coverage, well, then that kind of gives you the I main plausibility of, okay, there could be one person that, I mean, hasn't felt like publicly disclosing this for, I mean, one of many reasons. But the language used in the debate really does not give that wiggle room there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, ahead, I would Michaela. think the yeah, sorry about that. Um yeah, I would think the issue would be more, you know, not one person has been denied coverage. Like I, I think using that terminology could really fundamentally change this because, you know, the 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 biggest criticism these plans face is that they don't accept people who have these pre-existing health conditions, which can be pretty commonplace, things like diabetes, heart conditions, um, which are a big uh, problem that the ACA tried to address. Well, and she does say um, a couple minutes later, not one person was denied health care because of that plan. So she offers both variations of, you know, not one person has lost coverage and not one person has been denied coverage because of this. Hmm. Do you feel like I'm thinking about what John said, that um, if we look at this claim a little bit broader, like we obviously can't prove or it's seeming like we can't prove one, at least one individual person lost their health care. But it's true that that it's we haven't seen widespread complaints about this. Um, you know, Doug Oman said it was a small factor in 2018, and I can go back to him or the insurance division for sure today and say, are you guys seeing, you know, hearing many complaints about this? Um, so even if we can't get at like one individual person or multiple individuals who lost their health care, we can say that it hasn't seemed to be a major problem and there's not too many public reports out there about it is that do you guys think that's kind of puts it into a category where we can check this yeah, yeah. i think that helps a lot yeah i think that's fair um i think that is something we could verify um it's tough but i i think it meets our criteria so maybe she doesn't get an a because there are these um 
little bits of evidence that show there could be people out there. Um, it's plausible, as Marissa points out. Um, there's this anonymous message on the Better Business Bureau site um, and that kind of thing. So so maybe it's a B or less. I could, see a about, B, right? I could see a B making a lot of sense just from the standpoint of, okay, there's no proof that she's wrong, but there's also not necessarily anything saying that she's right. But it makes sense. I mean, the fact that we haven't been hearing about people losing their coverage, I mean, where what she's saying, I mean, it makes sense that it could be correct. But I mean, she made that claim, not, it isn't like she had done a poll of every person and knows that for sure. So I think a B would make a lot of sense here. Yeah, I would agree with a B. Um, basically, echoing John's point that we can't <laughs> we can't prove that this anonymous message is true, but we also can't disprove it either. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I know one of Michaela's articles from a couple of years ago about you know I mean just the numbers of farmers um, I think without insurance was less than like 5,000. So, I mean, we're talking about a smaller portion of the population already. So examples of, um, you know, struggles to, with either like losing or being denied coverage within that portion alone are already going to be hard to find. But yeah, I think this puts it within the extent that we can verify it. Okay. Are you okay with the B? What do you, what do you think about that, Marissa? Yeah, I agree. Okay, good deal. So um, that's, you know, and if I get, if I hear something more or different from the Iowa Insurance Division, I'll let you guys know. Um, if we're looking at, um, uh, I think that doesn't change the overall grade uh, from a C, uh, if we're averaging now a B and a D. So um, that the that's what I settled on for my conclusion for Hart's the her two claims that we'd be averaging here from the debate. So um, I guess if we if we are kind of done discussing that, I can flip to the claims by Marionette Miller Meeks. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sounds great. Okay, so. Um, this is looking at a couple of claims that Marionette Miller Meeks said during the October 8th debate. Um, so one of them is also related to COVID-19. Surprise, surprise. Um, she said, uh, quote, the CDC has already said over 98,000 people had non-COVID related deaths because of hospitals that were closed down for non-essential services. Um, she had said this as kind of an example of a side effect of the shutdowns in the early months of the pandemic. So um, we reached out to the campaign, to Miller Meeks's campaign, and asked what research she was referring to uh, from the CDC or what report, and they did not get back to us. Um, we also emailed the CDC and did not hear back from that organization before deadline. Um, and just for listeners, CDC is the centers, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which has been one of the preeminent sources of data on COVID-19. Um, so we were able to find a CDC report that was first posted online um, 
last week, and which was after the debate, but there might have been some earlier information that was along the same lines. So this report um, said an estimated 299,000 excess deaths, and so these are deaths above like the baseline deaths of a regular year, occurred in the United States from late January through October 3rd, with about 198,000 or two-thirds attributed to COVID-19. So this leaves about 100,000 excess deaths during that seven-month period that aren't from COVID. The report's writers say within it, quote, results inform efforts to prevent mortality directly or indirectly associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, such as efforts to minimize disruptions to healthcare. So that's obviously the point that Marionette Miller-Meeks is trying to make. It's one of the Republican talking points about how you have to balance uh, public health and safety with the economic impacts of shutdowns. Um, but so we wanted to look at just the period of the shutdown, the um, the order in Iowa that that was prohibiting these uh, um, non-essential services and things. So in the early month or so of the pandemic, maybe six weeks, um, many many governors, including Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, suspended non-essential medical services, elective surgeries, and non-emergency dental procedures. And in part, that was because of shortages of PPE and also because we just didn't know a ton about how the virus spread. Um, Iowa's emergency declaration was in place March 27th to, to April 27th, so about a month. So kind of looking at that narrower window of time when there actually were some shutdowns, a July report in the Journal of the American Medical Association found 87,000 excess deaths nationwide from March 1st to April 25th, with about 45% of those, or more than 30,000, not attributed to COVID-19. So it's, you know, that's kind of the window that we're talking about for when the shutdowns occurred. Um, so it's possible some of those excess deaths might have been due to shutdowns of non-emergency procedures. Um, but it's also possible people avoided the hospital because they were afraid of catching COVID. Um, and, you know, since emergency rooms were never closed, you know, there was some data showing that the emergency rooms were seeing fewer people for things like heart attacks and strokes. But it's not like people who were dying couldn't get into the hospital. Um, so for for the grade on this claim, I gave Miller Meeks a C because um, – Although she was right um, about that number of Americans that um, died of non-COVID-related deaths, um, the, her linking it to hospitals being closed down for non-essential services seems like it's not really proven. Um, these research studies don't seem to know or know yet whether those were connected to the shutdowns or whether they were connected to people just fearful of going to the hospital during those time period. Also, the number she cited is through a seven-month period when those medical services shutdowns only lasted for like a month to six weeks. So that was um, part of why I, I gave her a C on that claim. The second claim in the ad is a quickie. Um, she had said 40% of our, meaning Iowa's, energy resources are from renewables. Um, the U.S. Energy Information Administration reported um, just in May that Iowa gets 42% of its net electric generation from wind and another 2% from biomass, solar, and hydroelectric power. So I gave her an A on that second claim. So I, I am expecting we've, I'll have some good feedback from you guys on this, especially that early claim. I don't know if Michaela, as healthcare reporter, what do you think? 
Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, like you said, I think most of my thoughts really kind of center on that first claim. Um, it's interesting to me the way Miller Meeks really kind of framed the statement. Um, it's almost as if she's trying to point to hospitals as the bad guy here, um, or just sort of as the reason these excess deaths occurred. Um, but I agree with you. And I, I, you know, that's kind of what I found in the course of my reporting. It's that, you know, if any patient needed emergency care during that time, or had been receiving care for things like uh, cancer treatment, for example, if, if someone needed chemotherapy, they weren't blocked from really receiving that care in the midst of all this either. Um, really, it was just kind of the routine care, you know, you couldn't go for your well check visits with your family doctor, things like that. Um, so I think a lot of people, you know, at least in the reporting that I've done, they really kind of attributed to that fear and maybe that misinformation um, that was kind of going around early in the pandemic. So I think the framing is interesting. Um, and I did have a follow up question to you know, that you, you point out that stat from the Journal of America, excuse me, the Journal of the American Medical Association that said 45% of those deaths or more than uh, 30,000 were not attributed to COVID. Were those attributed to things like drug overdoses, heart attacks? I, do you know what those were attributed to? I, I don't think the report said, I can go back and double check, but I think it was more just like, um, I think there was a quote that I initially had in the fact checker that was something like, um, you know, this might be this, or it might be this other thing, or, you know, kind of them saying we, that's not part of this study, but, but these are things that we might need to look into further. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the tricky thing about all of this, just because these are like, I guess in the scheme of research, like seven months is a really short period of time. Um, and we really probably won't have solid answers on, on why these deaths occurred for a long time. But I don't think Miller Meeks can really discount things that, that were happening in the midst of this too. You know, we, we saw more people experiencing mental health crisis. Um, you know, people were experiencing heart attacks, but they just chose not to go to the emergency room either because they were fearful of getting sick or, because they, there was misinformation about whether they could or, or couldn't go. So I don't think it's necessarily all on the hospital shoulders or on these lockdown procedure shoulders that, that these excess deaths occurred. John and Marissa, what do you guys think? I agree with Michaela. I think that there's a difference between saying that, hey, I mean, these people died because they chose that a lot of people didn't feel comfortable going to hospitals and saying that they were closed when emergency rooms were open. So I think that's an important distinction to make there um, because I think that does really change things. Well, and I go back to one of the points that um, Michaela made just about chemotherapy. Like, um, let's say you had a course of chemotherapy you were scheduled to do, and this it was during this whole thing. You might delay it. You might say, I'm just going to try to, you know, I'm going to wait a month or two. If that was a critical time in your care and you needed that, I mean, I suppose it's possible that people could have died. Um, but I'm guessing just a lot of that care was came later. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the hospitals I've talked to, they've talked a lot about the fact that they're really scrambling at this point now that things are open to try to make up for those gaps. Um, 
you know, they talked a lot about their fear of routine screenings. Um, so mammograms, you know, if you miss out on a mammogram and you don't get it until three months later, that could be a different prognosis for your disease. Um, you know, it, it, it could get worse in that time. So I think hospitals are really trying to come to terms with that and really trying to scramble to catch up with those patients. So, you know, as this research kind of points out, I do think there is credit to be said for, for those kind of cases. And yeah, the, these lockdowns did play a part. Um, I just don't think it played the only part. Marissa, did you have anything else to add? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with everything everyone's said already. Um, I mean, you know, it's unclear just because of the data we have and how relatively new the virus is, you, you know, I mean, were some of these deaths from undiagnosed COVID-19 or, you know, what ultimately, as Michaela just said, was the effect of um, these more routine hospital visits that were delayed. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think um, so much more is going to be known over time about what happened. Um, but even with people who died, you know, I, I know they're not always definitively able to say how everyone, you know, how everyone died, whether it was COVID or, you know, whether it was like marked as pneumonia or something else like that especially in the early time, the early weeks. Um, so it, averaging these two grades, um, it comes out, it's a C and an A. So that would be a B overall for Miller-Meeks. Does anyone um, have a problem with that or you generally agree? I generally agree. Um, on that second claim, too, I think that's a very straightforward one. Um, I mean, it's been mentioned by a lot of people about how much Iowa has a very large renewable dependence compared to other places where, I mean, that I mean number is the highest in the country for wind energy. So I think that's a straightforward one as well. And the B overall makes a lot of sense to me. Does anyone else feel like kind of inordinately proud about that being like highest in the nation, even though I have absolutely nothing to do with our wind energy footprint? <laughs> 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 There's just not not a lot of things that you know Iowa's like number one. Yeah, right. and it is kind of a cool stat that that we're able to generate that much power from wind energy. Um, no, I, I I do think that is a really cool thing, and not a lot, not something that I think about a lot too. You know, you see, you drive past the windmills, and you're like, oh yeah, there it is, but you don't really think about how much it's actually contributing. Right. Yeah. And it contributes to a lot of jobs too. It's, I believe, the most recent report from, oh, I can't remember the exact name. I'm going to think of it in a second here. Um, but I believe it's between nine and 10. Oh, from the American Wind Energy Association. There it, it contributes is. to nine to 10,000 jobs a year for the state. So cool. it's a big deal. Cool. The photos of the workers in like the tops of those things, though, um, I, I don't know what it, the phobia is called for fear of heights. I don't have that normally, but seeing those photos give me that phobia. Yeah, that would be a crazy job, but kind of cool. Um, okay, well, I think we're done for our checking, but um, uh, I think we might have something lined up for next week. Marissa, do you have something? Yeah, um, so next week we'll look into an ad paid for by the um, by the DSCC on Facebook. It's just a six-second ad on that takes aim at Senator Joni Ernst. 
And it says, uh, Joni Ernst gave trillions in tax breaks to corporate special interests. She's not on our side. Um, and that's referring to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So, um, yeah, I'll be taking a look at that for next week and seeing what the impact has been with that so far. I have a feeling it'll take us longer than six seconds to talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. Um, the Fact Checker is edited by Craig Jamulis, and our podcast is produced by Stephen Colbert. Our music is Lobby Time by Kevin McLeod. I'm Erin Jordan. I'm Michaela Ram. I'm John Steffi. I'm Marissa Payne. And we'll fact check you later. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.